Hello, everybody, and welcome to this latest episode in predictions in the consumer sector. My name is Fatim Trimaboy. I'm uh, the lead for the Asia Employment Pensions and Incentives Practice based in Singapore. And also on the screen is Shu Jinku, partner in our Sydney Employment Pensions and Incentives Practice. Today, we're going to be thinking about the employment issues that arise and predictions in, in the employment space for the consumer sector. And we'll be focusing on four key areas, really managing employee well-being, um, thinking about return to work issues, bullying and harassment and the increasing claims related to those. And finally, uh, a rise in employee activism. It's been a really interesting time for clients in the consumer sector and beyond. And as we're grappling now with our post-COVID position, these are some of the key areas that we think will be um, important to clients. Shu, kicking off on the mental, on the, sorry, managing employee health and well-being, are you seeing that as being an important issue in Australia? We really are. And I think there's been so much of a crisis around the pandemic and people have been working in circumstances which are unprecedented, to use the, the most uh, overused word of uh, 2021 and 2022. Uh, and what that means is there have been so many pressures that have been placed on people, both uh, with work, with managing uh, family, managing everything else, sick, injured relatives, all of those things have really placed a great deal of pressure on people. And so there is a, I think, heightened risk of individuals burning out because they've been just under so much pressure and stress uh, over the last few years. And what that means is people are really rethinking what they want to do. And what that has meant is all, there is this great war for talent, whether it's a great resignation, the great poach, however you describe it, uh, there is a, just a great deal of pressure on organisations to be able to manage, uh, find good staff, retain good staff, uh, and to be able to really continue to deliver to their clients and customers uh, what they say that they want to be able to do. And I just don't see that changing uh, anytime soon. I think that's right. And that's definitely the experience uh, across Asia as well. I think most businesses were quite good when the pandemic first kicked off and we had uh, lockdowns and remote working. Uh, they were really good about keeping mental health and well-being on the, the radar and the agenda and thinking about how employees were going to manage in these difficult scenarios. But as we sort of return to the new normal, to use another overused phrase, um, Coming back into the workforce, those mental health concerns are, are different now, but they're still there and we still need to think about the impact of, of employees. And uh, I think that's part of the um, discussion that's happening around whether or not I, I really want to be working in the way that I'm working, whether I'm enjoying getting value out of what I'm doing. And that's fueling some of the great resignation um, decisions. So I think for employers to be successful in this post-pandemic phase definitely requires them to continue keeping mental health and well-being and recognising that two years of immense pressure is going to have an impact on how employees reintegrate back into the workforce now. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think there's just been that isolation factor with mm. people working from home uh, or being unable to work if they work in a, in a frontline location and how that plays out and how that all of that pent up pressure is going um, to be released, particularly as we are looking at coming back into the office or the, the shop front or whatever it is and how that is going to be managed um, and dealt with with people being very some people being very hesitant about 
managing that and what that will look like uh, in, in the coming weeks, months and years. And the reluctance even to sort of re-engage back into uh, the old way of working. So thinking about vaccinations, what's the current position now in Australia in, in relation to that? It's a changing uh, position. We had for a long time uh, quite strict mandatory requirements, which meant that you could not enter certain workplaces and you couldn't enter you know, public transport and those sorts of things, which required uh, vaccinations. And to an extent, that made things easier in that there was uh, a signposted approach. Now things are changing. We're at, you know, you've had first vaccination, second vaccination, boosters, where will flu vaccinations fit yep. in? And so those sorts of requirements are being uh lessened and you know, the approach is is changing and so there isn't that same mandatory nature which then I think means it's difficult for employers to be able to say this is the roadmap to how things happen and this is what we will enforce. Things are now changing where people are I think a little bit fatigued with yeah. the the issue of managing you know, mandatory vaccinations and people only coming into the shop the shop if they are vaccinated and how that plays out in terms of do you turn away business can you afford to turn away business um, in that circumstance as opposed to how are our workers feeling about this in circumstances where they may have their own issues in relation to either wanting to be vaccinated or not wanting to be vaccinated and how they manage that conflict within themselves and how that plays out in a, in a broader context. It's really interesting. One of the things that I know that we were grappling with here and, and businesses were really struggling with was once we removed the requirement for individuals to take a, an ART test before they came into offices uh, and that was no longer mandatory, it actually caused quite a lot of conflict and you had a significant portion of the employee population who were very much of the view that I still want to make sure everybody coming into the office that's going to be working alongside me, I want to know that they uh, are not positive for COVID. Um, and others saying, well, absolutely not. I certainly am not going to subject myself to a test if it's not mandatory and a real tension created between those positions similar things around mask wearing where it's not mandatory some people saying well actually I, I really want not just myself to wear a mask but I want those around me to wear a mask I want to maintain social distancing and it is a balance I, I think ultimately the lowest common denominator will prevail and I think businesses uh, won't be able to adopt those harsher measures. Uh, employees will are, are pushing back against them quite considerably, but it has to be done very, very sensitively because there are certainly employees who feel vulnerable and concerned for their own health and safety. And if the idea is reintegration, and we'll, we'll come to that as perhaps sort of a second topic, but if it is reintegration, we're going to have to take into account that not everybody feels safe in the workplace yet. That's right. And, and the other point is not just the individual, but if they say, well, I live with a family member who yeah. is immunocompromised and all of those things, which employers traditionally may not have had as much regard to, will now uh, loom very large in the conversation that they need to have with staff and what are the flexibilities and arrangements that they can put in place. And more importantly, should they put in place? That yeah. will be uh, a discussion that will need to be had at all levels around 
what can be done and what should be done and what is commercially viable uh, for an organisation in terms of responding to, as we hopefully um, touch wood, are coming out of the pandemic and into uh, the next stage. Absolutely. And it sort of leads quite nicely onto our next topic, which is this return to work and this uh, journey, because I think it is a journey. It's certainly not straightforward or, or clear cut, this journey of reintegrating and getting people back into the physical office spaces. What's that journey been like in Australia? It's been quite variable. Uh, there've been some organisations have really encouraged people to come back into the office for all the positives that that provides. Other organisations haven't moved uh, at all and have said we will encourage people to remain uh, at home and continue to do that uh, on a long-term basis. And then I think the majority of organisations fall somewhere in between. And again, it's that where you have uh, one or the other, it's relatively easy to manage. It's that hybrid that is going to cause uh, some tension and some conflict and things that need to be managed, particularly where you have different cohorts of employees. So for example, head office staff yep. uh, may be able to work a lot more uh, remotely and be able to undertake their tasks uh, working from home or elsewhere, whereas frontline staff may not have that same level of flexibility. And so how organisations will then differentiate between cohorts and is that fair is that equitable is that okay um, this is the these are all the challenges that uh, organizations will have to manage and respond to yeah, and, and we've certainly been grappling with it from an Asia perspective. I mean, historically, Asia hasn't been as open to flexible or remote working as I think other jurisdictions have. There's definitely a culture of presenteeism and people come into the office every day. Um, now, that was starting to change a little bit pre, pre-pandemic, but nowhere near the rates of, of other jurisdictions. And I think for employers here, there's been a real kind of moment of crisis in terms of thinking about how do we want to deal with this going forwards? Um, some have taken quite a heavy-handed approach and used the mandatory language of in requiring employees to come back into the workplace. Um, by and large, that hasn't been successful. And when you are concerned with the great resignation, or the great approach, yes. attrition rate, employees talking about mental health and well-being and saying, this is not good for me, I don't want this. Actually, it's a very bold and brave employer that decides to force everybody to come back into the workplace right now. I think it's going to have to be a much, much softer and gentler approach. But recognising that at some point we do need to decide whether we are in the office or whether we are at home or if it's a hybrid, how does that work in a way that is sensible and practical? Because one of the requirements or the reasons why people will want to come back into the office is to have other people around them, to have that opportunity to engage and interact. But if everybody is working flexibly on different days, that's certainly not going to work. Um, and also thinking about things like promotion and progress and how will those opportunities be equally distributed if some are more visible because they're more present in the office. Yeah, that's right. And there's some interesting research which is still in, in its infancy, but it suggests that there is a gender divide between those who are coming back into the office and those who are predominantly working from home. And it looks like uh, on some figures I saw that about 40% plus of males are coming uh, back into the office more regularly and 
somewhere around 30, 35% of women are working more predominantly um, from home. So that idea that there may be a differentiation in uh, recognition, promotions, remuneration arising from those choices uh, that are made and whether they are choices or there are other factors which push or pull people to making uh, where they work from home um, or not um, will be an interesting area and we'll just have to see how that plays out and whether we see an equal um, distribution in terms of that return to the office. Yep, definitely. I think one of the other things that was a bit of a surprise for for all of us, but um, I think played out in Australia as well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that remote working arrangement actually we saw led to quite a jump in the number of bullying and harassment claims. So if remote working is going to continue to be a long term part of the workplace solution, we really need to think about how we manage those expectations and how we manage the interactions that employees have between each other. The sort of virtual communication model really doesn't lend itself um, to, to lots of familiarity. I think you miss that opportunity to build relationships and trust. You miss the occasional bumping into each other in the pantry or or uh, in the corridors that means that you have some sort of a relationship with with each other. If it becomes purely transactional, what we found in that context where people were very willing to put their hands up and complain and say, actually, I don't like the way that I'm being treated. And we saw a spike in the number of bullying and harassment claims. Is that consistent in Australia as well? It is counterintuitively, I think, for me at least, that this idea that we didn't have the same face-to-face level of interactions, yet we actually did see an increase in um, bullying and harassment claims. And I think you you hit the nail right on the head in terms of there's there's been that loss of the the social capital, if you like, that face-to-face interaction, which means that other forms of communication aren't as effective. So emails are taken out of context, things are said uh, over a a video conference, which don't have that Mm -hmm. same level of uh, connection, which means that um, there are more claims that that have um, occurred. And whether we will see uh, that continuing or whether we will see that shift. Um, I mean, the other thing is, of course, this occurred in an environment where people were, to a large extent, quite isolated. And so whether that isolation also played a part in the the increase in complaints in that people just didn't have the same support networks, the same ways um, to be able to interact and perhaps nip things in the bud. Um, with a a quick conversation um, that could have resolved the problem as opposed to it festering and then building up over more and more communications. Uh, And then you find yourself in a situation where um, there's now an intractable issue that can't be um, dealt with. So again, it will be interesting to see whether we come back to um, perhaps a, a normal level of complaints about bullying and harassment as people come back into the office, or will we see a whole new stream of uh, issues arising which will need to be dealt with? It's interesting you use that phrase, normal level of complaints, because actually when, when we think about kind of pre-pandemic, there was already a rise in employee activism more generally and not specific to the bullying and harassment, which I think definitely 
spiked, uh, spiked rather because of um, the remote working. Uh, just generally, the idea that employees are much, much more vocal now than they ever have been, including in Asia, which historically and traditionally has been a much, much more reserved society. You are much more likely to vote with your feet and leave than you were to raise a complaint. But when we launched our Future of Work report, the firm, the firm um, did did that sort of deep dive survey with with companies around what what issues were they anticipating coming to the fore. And definitely, even in Asia, employees are much, much more engaged. They care about company values. They care about sustainability sustainability and environmental concerns. They care about your stance on equality, diversity, discrimination. And these complaints were already on the rise. And I think we're going to see more of that um, and perhaps even more heightened now coming out of COVID. Yeah, that's right. I think um, that that transactional nature of the employment relationship being I attend for work and then you pay me is now becoming much, much broader. There is a sense of do I have shared values with my employer? And if I don't, why is that? And does that mean that there is a disconnect between myself and the organisation? And how is that going to be dealt with? Is it going to be dealt with by simply voting with my feet and leaving? Or am I going to say, I want to change the organisation and the organisation needs to change. And the way that is done is through some form of vocalised um, uh, discussion. And we are seeing more and more that organisations who perhaps traditionally have thought that the way to deal with this issue is simply to say we are focused on our business and it's not appropriate for us, therefore, to have a opinion on particular matters are now being told that by not engaging and not taking a position, that is taking a position and their silence is seen as a contribution to the discussion, whether it is uh, wanted or liked or uh, even appropriate. And so I think that is going to mean organisations are going to have to think more carefully about how they engage with staff and how they engage publicly and what that will mean uh, for how their employees see them. Yeah, I think that, that must be right. Silence is as damning to your reputation as taking a country position, I think. Well, if we round that up and sort of think about some of those predictions, I think what we're saying is that across both Asia and Australia, if you're in the consumer sector, some of the key trends you want to be thinking about that are likely to impact your business over the next sort of 12, 18 months is employee mental health and wellbeing. That's going to continue to be an important one to, to be mindful of and to continue um, to, to think about. Return to work is going to be challenging and we're going to have to grapple with all of its variations and trying to strike some sort of a balance that keeps all your different stakeholders appeased. Um, but also the, the bullying and harassment, recognising that actually those claims have been on the rise and are likely to continue. So ensuring that you've got good and strong procedures and, and processes in place to deal with those complaints. And as part of that, sort of the final point, thinking about employee activism and making sure you're aware that employees are likely to be more vocal and continue to be more vocal. So you have to be able to adapt and, and respond to it. Is that a fair summary of some of the key issues? I think it is. And the only other thing is that this is going to be an ongoing discussion. This is not one that you can just have once and then put in the bottom drawer and say, that's our strategy for the next 12 months, 24 months. It's going to be back and forth and no one is going to get it right first time. It's going to have to develop and be changed as we deal with uh, emerging trends and as you get feedback from uh, your people about what they want to do and what they want to achieve. 
Fantastic. So it's going to be an exciting, if not challenging, time for our clients in the uh, consumer sector. Thanks ever so much, Shay. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.